I regret that the effort to repeal and immediately replace the failures of Obamacare will not be successful. I'm certainly disappointed for seven years I've been hearing repeal and replace from Congress and I've been hearing it loud and strong and then when we finally get a chance to repeal and replace, they don't take advantage of it, so that's disappointing. Republicans by themselves uh, are not prepared at this particular point to do a replacement. Welcome to Primary Concerns. I'm your host, Brian Boitler, Senior Editor at The New Republic. Trump care is dead, at least for now. Senate Republicans lack sufficient support to repeal and replace Obamacare or do anything to the healthcare system on a purely partisan basis. So what happens next? Will Republicans sabotage Obamacare for revenge? Will they feel compelled to stabilize the healthcare system? And how will congressional Republicans' passivity towards Trump change now that their legislative agenda is in free fall? Daily Beast editor Sam Stein joined me in studio to discuss. Sam Stein, welcome back to Primary Concerns. Thank you for having me. What a, what a pleasure it is to make my second appearance on this podcast. I know, you're one of, one of the few. Last time you were here, you were the main politics guy at Huffington Post, and now you're similar, but at the Daily Beast. What's, yes. what's that change been like? So uh, I for the past week, I've been working as politics editor at the Daily Beast. You know, the change is not as dramatic as I expected mm-hmm. uh, when you work in the digital political world. For journalism, you know, certain things are what certain things are yeah. and you're scrambling. Uh, I do love the Daily Beast, though, already. A bunch of really fantastic, hungry reporters who are just trying to break great news stories. And uh, that's kind of my bread and butter, too. Do you uh, do you have a similarly sized team under you now or a smaller team? It's a smaller team. Uh, it actually reminds me a lot. I of come what... from like the smallest team. <laughs> imaginable so like no no it's like it reminds me of where HuffPost was sort of in the early Obama years and it's you know it's great because you're scrappy um you have to be scrappy you know you want to make a name for yourself too in that in that universe and I still feel that way internally so and now you have a template and a proven track record of getting from where Huffington Post (laughs) was in the early Obama years to where it is now and just Repeat for God the daily repeat, piece. yeah. Um, so you basically begged to be on my show. Oh to, my God, yes. To, to, you could have actually you're, gotten me to pay. Look, like I, this you is just, you, you're, you're actually like you're, 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 you're here. You're magnanimous. I, I brought up the Daily Beast on behalf of your new employer because you mainly wanted to come on here to talk about <laughs> the podcast you made for your previous employer. Yeah, um, yeah, that's fair enough. Uh, so Sorry, let's get Daily that out Beast. of the way uh, up top, so we can actually get on interesting things. Sure. Yeah. Um, podcast is called Candidate Confessional. Yes. It started uh, as. You know, a series, a serial of profiles of losing candidates. But I, this, I, do you call it a season? Yeah, I think we have to call them seasons. Otherwise, people are going to be like, why were you gone for a year? Right, right, right. <laughs> but you, you, you broaden it because, you know, there, there are only so many ways a, a political candidate can lose, but there's so many ways to fail in life. And so you've widened the scope of the podcast to include, uh, in the political world, legislative failures, policy failures, but, and like, prominent public failure of any kind. Yeah, right? I mean, the, so the the general gist of the podcast when Jason Cherkis and I conceived of it was that when you lose, uh, your story is inherently more fun to hear about than when you win. And that's because winners are in positions of power, which means that they're not going to be as open about 
their lives. And, and they just sand the rough edges off of yeah, the campaign, right? right? Like all the drama gets washed away. And not just because they're, they and want to We don't know about like the infighting and all the, and all the cool stuff, and all, but also the human toil that happens on campaigns. So for the first season, it was obvious that the best vehicle for telling these types of stories were campaigns. Um, and then we kind of confronted this unfortunate reality, which is that uh, there are only a limited number of very interesting losers yeah. uh, that we can interview. Um, and so we sort of expanded beyond there to talk about uh, legislative defeats, which in some ways are even more profound than campaign ones. So this season we talked to Senator Chris Murphy of Connecticut about what it was like to try to push for gun control in the wake of Newtown. Uh, we talked to representatives of uh, Speaker, uh, then Speaker Nancy Pelosi's office and uh, then major- Minority Leader uh, John Boehner's office about the story behind that first failed TARP vote when the when the Dow died, uh, dove about 770 points. We talked to Barney Frank about the attempt to uh, allow gays to serve openly in the military that resulted in Don't Ask, Don't Tell, uh, and what went wrong for Bill Clinton in those early years. So those are the types of stories that we're now telling, in addition to campaign stories, which uh, we, we told as well. What about What about doing one with Chuck Schumer? Because he so desperately wanted to be majority leader, <laughs> and now he's minority leader, and like you could tell that this is not really what he's not where he anticipated. But being. but but he's kind of grown into the role, and and he's you think he's, he's, you think he's doing a good job. I I think he's figured out that the role of minority leader in a uh, in a unified government situation like the one we have now is actually going to be more important to the future of his party and to progressives yeah. than being a majority leader in divided government with Hillary Clinton as president. He would have been serving a much higher master and and operating the Senate for the purposes of blocking and tackling the House in ways that are just like not ultimately fulfilling, but but, you know, stopping his mission is is arguably more important. Yeah. And yeah. he's the most powerful person in Democratic politics now where he, he wouldn't have have, wouldn't wouldn't have been. So I think that anyway, I, th- I think. I remember, if, I if remember were, interviewing if, if, him once too about this. This is um, when it was be, when it became clear that he was going to take over for Reed. Reed had yet to retire. Reed is Harry Reed. Harry Reed, sorry, <laughs> former <laughs> and, Senate majority. And uh, minority. he talked about how there is a certain um, I don't want to use the right word here. Not joy, but there's more fun in in a way to be in the minority. You can, I mean, the, the consequences are the, the weight on you is slightly different. Uh, the consequences may be bigger, but y- what you have to do is more. Um, playful i mean if you think about like obviously what harry reed and nancy pelosi are going to be known for in history is what they did in 2009 2010 when they were the majority leader and the speaker and and had unified control of government they did all this stuff but set setting that aside what democratic leaders will be known for in this era are things like killing social security privatization and now apparently seemingly hopefully killing uh, Obamacare, the, Obamacare repeal, and yeah. those are things that you are able to do, and then you know become renowned for sure. only in this weird, unusual circumstance of being the minority leader of the Senate. Yeah, I think if I had to do the candidate confessional interview on this, though, I, I mean, obviously it's clear, but I want to do McConnell on what I, happened. So I don't want to spoil any episodes for anyone who might subscribe, but maybe we can do a mock version of Candidate Confessional right here <laughs> so your listeners can get a sense of the format and the tone you try to set. Sure. Okay, so you'll be you and I'll be Mitch McConnell. And so I'm interviewing you as about, Mitch McConnell. And now that the, can, his, you, can you perfect we'll set, the we'll, Southern we'll, we'll, draw? We'll, we'll set the scene. Uh, Mitch McConnell 
is Senate Majority Leader, Unified Government. This was the moment he's been waiting for to do big things. His first big thing that he wanted to do was repeal Obamacare. Can't seem to do it. And so now he submits to an interview with Sam Stein on candidate confession about what it's like to lose such an important political fight. So the truth is, uh, when I do prep for these things, I I have a little bit more time than 10 seconds. Not that much more. Uh, I think if I had him sit, seated across me like this, the fir- one of the first questions I would ask is, at what point did it become clear to you that you weren't going to be able to get repeal and replace or just straight up repeal well, past the Senate? I'd say that that moment became clear for me uh, back back in January <laughs> when, I, when we took the majority with uh, just two vote majority. There's an old saying down in Kentucky that there's no education in the second kick of a mule. I wouldn't have gone through this process at all if I didn't have to. That is remarkable. <laughs> I don't want you to break character, so I'm going to keep going. Uh, um, is there anything, you know, th- that you look back upon uh, that you would have done differently, whether it was from a communication standpoint or a legislative standpoint? Uh, in August of last year, I would have advised. Uh, the American people to vote for Hillary Clinton instead of Donald Trump. <laughs> and that's when the interview ends. <laughs> Thank you for making news. All right. Connell. So enough about you. Sure. Let's talk about healthcare. Yeah, let's do it. I mean, it's a big day, obviously. Um, well, but every day feels like a big day now. Do you think Republicans are going to keep trying or is this the second kick of the mule for them? So we got to I think the context here is important. Right now we're sitting and three Republican senators have said that they will not support straight repeal. So they they were going to do repeal and replace as one package that fell apart. We were recording this Tuesday that fell apart Monday night. Mitch McConnell said just to essentially my read on it was he wanted to present a body like to say repeal is dead. You need to prove that you can't get the votes for it. So he said we're going to just hold one last vote on repealing all of Obamacare's spending and taxes and then delaying that. Uh, implementation for two years so that we can do replace separately. And by present the body, as I understand it, he's trying to show um, everyone, but specifically the conservatives in his caucus, that no, their pipe dreams for a standalone repeal bill can't make it through the chamber. Ergo, something else has to happen. Now, what's that something else, right? Like, I I look at it, we did a piece last night on the Daily Beast where we sort of gamed out what his options are here, Mm -hmm. um, and none of them are particularly good. Uh, the one that seems, I'll just, I don't, I can't even rank them. They're all universally bad, but among them are try to find some sort of Republican only approach that might make it through like the Cassidy, Bill Cassidy, Lindsey Graham, give money to the States and let them do their thing approach. There's no appetite for that, that I can tell. The other is to work across the aisle and just do uh, reforms to the private individual market. And, um, that. I, again, don't see how people like Marco Rubio, who called like reinsurance a bailout, suddenly turn around and say, yeah, let's do reinsurance. Well, Marco Rubio is amazingly flexible. So. Well, that would be even flexible <laughs> for him. A third is to let it fail, um, which is the Donald Trump approach. Um Trump has said he wants Obama. He's going to. This is the odd thing about what Trump just did right before his progress. He said he himself is going. He announced that he himself will let Obamacare fail to bring Democrats to the table. But he also announced that he will make sure that the Democrats own the failure, even though he himself has announced that he's going to do it. At so, some point, at some point, somebody should pull him aside and been like, you know, when you when you said that you wanted it to be a Muslim ban, you like he, he constantly steps uh, in his own breaks life. the fourth wall to tell 
the public in front of the cameras yeah. what, what his, he's going to do. Yeah, and like what what the what the like conniving and dishonest. It's ma- like you're so what a genius and, idea. And it, and and it always backfires. And he you know he gets away with it in the sense that sure. like that like you know he's not. Well, does he get? I don't know if he gets away. Yeah, with it. Just in I, this case, he, no, I know no, what you mean. But in this case, for instance, if you look at any poll. You know the view. The public basically says Republicans have. Ownership yeah, yeah. Right? I, I don't mean he gets away with it. Like, like it won't affect his poll numbers or Republican sure. poll numbers. I just mean there's n- nobody has interceded to stop him on it. And <laughs> where's Jared? I don't know. Like, Skiing. Like, like I, he, he's. I'd love to play poker against Donald Trump. Like, I don't want to spend any time with Donald Trump in any capacity other than beating him at poker. So, but okay. So that's the other option. That you know, in in a way, it seems like because the. Republican Party is Donald Trump's party, and and they clearly don't particularly like to cross the guy. That seems like the most likely option that they're going to pursue, and it is so deeply cynical. Yeah, I mean, and it is so potentially harmful. I mean, it is an open, it, it's a strategy openly premised on the idea that you want to increase human suffering. Yeah, I he Donald it's, it's Donald awful. Trump is vying to be the only, like only president in the history of the country. Like other presidents have been bad actors, obviously, but in general they try to cloak their bad actions in the guise of wanting to help the people in like, some way. Like Mike Pence about... being like, you know, we're going to cut Medicaid to strength. Right, Medicaid. right, right. Like, like the, Donald Trump is not even pretending like taking care of, of the people of the country is part of what the job of the president no. is. Like, no. I, it's it's very bizarre to me. Um, so I think that's where but, they, but I like, think that's where they go. But well, I'm, so, I'm not so, so, so I, I, I think that that's the path of least resistance in some ways, except that the, the the toll will build very rapidly over time, and at some point. Yeah, but Brian, what can this is why I think it happens because, in the end, um, the executive branch has a lot of leeway over administrating this law, and Republican senators can object. They can appropriate money with specific language attached to the appropriations, instructing them to do X, Y, and Z. Uh, but if the executive branch wants to monkey around with this thing, they can do there it. There are things. There are things. There are things that. Congress probably can't stop Trump and HHS from doing like they probably can't make it so that HHS advertises open yeah, enrollment. Any PR apparatus they can't force. But they can but they can they can they can legislate um, cost, cost sharing reductions, basically any any amount of money that it would take to stabilize the markets. Outside groups can take over <clears throat> where, you know, Obama's HHS le- left off and trying to make sure people enroll. So so that's you know, something that's kind of out of Tom Price's hands, out of Donald Trump's hands. I suppose. Um, but I, think, um, and, and, I just and think look, they have like, a capacity like, to do damage. It's true. But 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 to do to do the damage, you need everyone to like hold together through what would probably end up being hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people like losing their insurance. And that means not just Trump. Right. And not just Marco Rubio or Ted Cruz. But like Seema Verma and Tom Price and also like Susan Collins and Dean Heller. And to do that, they need to win the PR fight that says what's happening in, in the insurance markets now isn't Republicans fault. It's not Trump's fault. It's Obama's fault. It's Democrats fault. Yeah. But with Trump actively undermining that messaging strategy, I can imagine. I'm not saying it's going to happen. I'm not saying I, I would bet on it, but I could just imagine a scenario where, like, you end up with like a, Col- a Susan Collins, Angus King type <sighs> thing that turns into a bill that gets enough votes to override a veto if necessary. the The problem is in the House, probably. Yes. Um, but even even then, like, 
at some point I could imagine just kind of like the jig being up and, you know, if, if, if you have a debt limit that needs to pass and you just throw some stuff into it so that Republicans could claim there's no clean debt limit, Democrats get some stabilization stuff for Obamacare, Republicans get some tax cuts, you just, you know, pile a bunch of stuff together. Oh my God, why are you even remotely this optimistic? I'm not, no, no, no. <laughs> I preface to even To I, even envision the scenario is to engage in a form of optimism that I'm not comfortable <laughs> with right now. I just, like, look, like, you were you started this out by ranking what you thought the, the least likely to likely. I did not rank. I said would put they this, were unranked. Okay. Uh, How dare you? Fine. I, I would put this, if we were going to rank them, I would put this towards the bottom Fair of enough. what I thought was reasonably likely. Do you, but think, just, do you think we're going to be, um, here's another question. Do you think we'll be uh, the 2020 presidential campaign will still be about Obamacare in some capacity. Um, because God knows I can't take another campaign. I don't Obamacare. think so. I okay. don't think so. I think that I think that a lot of the Obamacare stuff, if there's any stuff left, look like there's some small chance that things get sorted out. That Obamacare kind of hobbles along in yeah. in okay shape. Uh, through this election, but I think that if there are any, if there's any really kind of malign effort to collapse, fully collapse insurance markets, that that will be addressed in the midterms. And then when, if that goes as you would want it to go, right, like that the midterms are run on sending Republicans a lesson about destroying people's lives by sabotaging their insurance markets. So that means Democrats end up with control of one or the other body. Um, and then once that happens, they use, you know, one thing that like liberals ought to be prepared for is that if, if Democrats take one house and not the other, that there's going to be some bad deals cut that they don't like. Like there's just, there's going to have to be some circa 2011, 12 type like that. So, 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 so the famous, uh, the grand bargain that never happened. Bargain with the super committee and blah, blah, blah. All kinds of horrible stuff is going to, but Democrats will. Do you remember covering that and thinking like, I not, not that it was bad, but like, I thought that that those were like tumultuous times and like, I would never be that like on edge about, stuff and now it's before. like daily and now daily it's, yeah to 11, I, right? I remember the debt ceiling fight in 2011 being like uh, emerging from that when it was finalized and being like holy shit that was so intense like i i i don't imagine i'll ever cover a story like that again a legislative story like that again and then and now it's just like every day so anyway to, to, sorry i was no, trying, to, okay. trying to freshen this I'm up try- for I, the look viewer. i've been spending the last eight months trying to tamp down on my anxieties about this administration and um i don't how feel do you like... think how do you think this administration <laughs> how do you think they're doing i mean if i you think gave them a report card it for would their first be six very months, very bad but like you I know think it's th- incomplete. Th- i think i think i think not uh not signaling to voters that donald trump was unfit for the presidency was extremely reckless and and then like getting yeah, him th- get, getting him elected was like <laughs> is like a, a like a very precarious thing for the country like a really dangerous thing and i still do but like what makes what makes you think he's not fit for the for the presidency (laughs) well okay to try to get this conversation back on track i'll say that if democrats we're not on track (laughs) if if, if democrats do take one of that one what they're going to do to you know they're going to have to do some sort of you know governing and that'll happen on the sides and they're going to try to not focus too much public attention on the fact that their fingerprints are on some bills that that aren't you know what their supporters really want but they're going to have subpoena power and so if the health care issue isn't worked out by the midterms or democrats take 
the House because of the sabotage of Obama. Yeah, the backlash, yeah. Then I think that 2020 is going to end up being about what they're able to do with the subpoena power. Because so I think I think you're right. I think that, well, I don't know. I mean, obviously the Democratic primary is going to be about health care, right? Like there's just going to be some oh, sure, breakdown sure. in there. And then you get to a point where Obamacare has been the law of at that point for what? Yeah. Seven years, eight years, nine years. Uh, oh my God, nine years. Yeah, at that point. And, um, you know, you're, I just don't see how you can advocate at this juncture anymore, repeal and replace. Yeah, I think that, well, I think you're going to get two arguments. One is like, let's not make too many dramatic changes because we've just finally got this thing onto some kind of even keel. Stable fighting, yeah. uh, the other is going to be, look, like the process of creating Obamacare was one, undertaken in good faith yeah. to meet conservatives halfway. Like, we're not going to sacrifice the ideal of universal coverage, but we're not going to try to make you swallow a fully public system. And we're going to get industry groups behind it, and that's going to give you guys cover to join. And And the theory behind that was that you get it done with, you know, 70 votes in the Senate and 300 yeah. votes in the House. And then healthcare kind of gets pulled out of politics for a generation. And, and Republicans, in some respects, should, do, I mean, if they were looking long term, they should do that deal now well they should yeah they, they, they sh should because in four years but well i, who I the hell knows? In, in a way i think it's too late right like that olive branch was swatted away i don't think it's too late and you have a system in place that is always going to be a ripe target for conservatives and because it's it's like this rube goldberg thing there's so many levers that they can pull to try to weaken it worsen yeah. it etc that there's going to be a very compelling argument next time Democrats have an opportunity to run the government, I think, to say, look... Exactly, which is why if Republicans were thinking strategically, they don't wait until Democrats they, have look, any like, power. It, 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 the, 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 Cut the, the deal now. The smart thing would have been for them after losing in 2012 to say to say that what they were campaigning on then was right. That 2012 will be our last chance to repeal this. Yeah. If we don't win in 2012, that moment will pass us by and we're going to have to, you know, come to some sort of detente on this issue. Yeah. But they didn't do that. No. And... and the the threat that the next Republican president is going to use the levers at his disposal to to damage the law to kick people off their insurance because because all they have to do is turn these knobs up or down and and people lose their health care is going to be too risky a proposition for a lot of Democrats to stomach so there's going to be a there's going to be a very compelling argument I think for ma like making radical reforms to the ACA that put it on a glide path to something closer to single payer so that. The only way to kick people off their insurance is to pass a law that Same actually that you, says you're you're off your you're insurance. Off. Yeah. And I I hope the argument carries because like this is this is like I'm normally not one of these like sappy kinds of people who's like this shouldn't be like I think this shouldn't be about politics is something like uh you know it's a it's a refuge for cowards who don't want to argue their position right they they say that's not a political question but in 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 one way, I think that healthcare, like it's too destabilizing just for people to have their premiums year in, year out, constantly subject to the whims of like partisan fighting. Yeah. And that at some point, like healthcare should just not really be like that. And <laughs> ideally, ideally, <laughs> I, ideally. I think you're right. I mean. I know you're right. I, but And. There's a purpose for it. It's not because I think that my and yet it's vision the of healthcare... ripest. It's the ripest yeah. of political targets. And and so, like, will we ever see? Honestly, though, I was thinking about this today. When will we ever see a a major healthcare reform bill? I mean, you'd have to. The conditions have to be so perfect, right? Mm. Do, yeah. They do in a way. I mean, even Obamacare. I was thinking about back to it. Like, it took 15 months. 
and it almost failed, but the conditions had to be just right. And it, it took an amazing amount of, um, what I would say is political courage to get it done. And I don't know if you're going to, it's sort of once in a generational forces aligning in a way that allow it to happen. And it's tough to know when the next time that will be. Yeah. I mean, in, in a, in a way, let's see how much damage gets done to the law between now and 2020. Right. Because what Republicans have done is drawn a, a very reactionary template, uh, like anti-democratic template for how you commandeer healthcare as an issue and use it like abuse norms and processes yeah. to try to get your way. Um, and it, you know, they, they like to pretend that the ACA process was the same, but it just wasn't. And if if Democrats reinherit health care in a damaged state where like the the exchanges only have a few million people in them in, in states that set up their own insurance marketplaces and, um, you know, the risk pools are super imbalanced. A lot of states don't have any insurers, whatever. Um, I think that Democrats will use the or will be under a lot of pressure, at least, to use the legislative template that Republicans have tried to use to pass Trump care to do something like throw open Medicare for everyone or, yeah. or like Medicaid is the insurer of last resort for everyone. And then you just have a fully universal underlying guarantee that everyone gets insurance. And then, you know, you figure out the rest of it later. But basically, you have a thing in place uh, that make that makes it so that to remove people's health care, you actually need to take an affirmative vote. You can't just... You can't just muck around and 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 uh, press like, the knobs. Yeah, just ad, like administrative administrative shenanigans to to screw people over. Um, but you know, I also I this is getting way 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 too far ahead of things. But at some point, I can imagine a conservative case for single payer, but not like not like not like <laughs> medic not like Medicare for all, but like some some like blue cross blue shield for all yeah just like <laughs> no but it, like, like an anti-corporate welfare argument for oh you know what i mean like, like you're 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 channeling your inner tim carney here well i, I or even like i could i i bet you that if if i had mike lee senator mike lee in here and was like if you had to choose between an obamacare model or a or a you know a, a, like a single payer model where you're not basically lining insurance company pockets in order to replicate the outcomes of single payer, he'd probably say, yeah, it probably just makes more sense for, if, if, if those are the two choices move in the single payer direction. Who just, books the podcast? Let's get Mike Lee in here. I'll, I do my own booking. I'll, oh. I'll, I'll ask Con Carroll. What, a, what um, a hustler. But like, look, like at some point it seems like Republicans lost the plot or like they finally realized that the plot they've been following. Where do you since, think that point was? I mean, I, so the story was like, like they that they told themselves was that Democrats took partisan steps to own the healthcare system. Then they spent all this money in a plan that wasn't popular, and so we Republicans are going to undo it. But then then they relented enough to say that okay, we're going to undo it, but then we're going to replace it. Yeah. And then they relented further, say okay, we're going to undo it and replace it, but we're going to replace it with something better. And at the end of the day, it, they were poised to do something like way more politically damaging and pointless than Democrats did in 09 and 010. They were going to pass an unpopular bill on a party line basis, just like Democrats, except this one would break faith with voters in a lot of ways. And so the old plot went haywire. And I don't see how they end up doing this approach again, where they where they like like charge into a box canyon sure. of trying to do well, a is this a place is this is this a process point or a policy point? i just think i, I, I think just, of it i think, I, of it, I think it's a politics point like if yeah, I was are, are, are republicans just going to surrender health care as an issue to democrats and like let them deal with it whenever they're in power well, in terms of or are they going to are they going to like are they going to be like okay repeal and replace was 
like a, 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 a like a useful mobilizing tool for a few years, and now we have to move on to figure out like what do Republicans do in the universe where the country is behind the proposition that everyone should be able should be insured. I think you know I look at it. it I was talking to some Obama officials today about this, um, about why they fe- why they feel like healthcare endured, um, or so far has mm-hmm. endured, and. Um, there's two. I, I think there's two schools of thought here. Um, one is that um, essentially Obama stole the conservative ideal for universal health care, and therefore conservatives never could find a policy that fit with their stated objectives of universal coverage because Obama took the one real model that they could have rallied around. Um, I get that. I, I think so. Um, and but the other one is sort of that um, when you overpromise, you're bound to underdeliver. And so in this case, it's not just that they were going to repeal and replace, but it's like all the stuff that Trump was talking about during the campaign. Like you're going to have beautiful, great health care. I'm not going to cut Medicaid and Medicare. And once you kind of get boxed into a situation where you ha- where where the voters expect certain things uh, that clearly objectively aren't going to come true. That becomes politically untenable. And I think it also it also gave a lot of my theory is that it gave a lot of these Republicans on the Hill pause. Right. Like if you're a Susan Collins or Lisa Murkowski or even a Ron Johnson, you no longer can say our voters want only repeal and replace. Now you have to wonder how much of my voting block, the Trump voters want us not to touch Medicaid because that's what Trump told them. How much of my voters want universal coverage because that's what Trump talked about, you know, like it gave them a little bit of self-doubt to the point where they felt like they could cross the president and they can cross Mitch McConnell. I think there's there's something to that. Um, I think that, like, what we're witnessing with Republicans right now is, like, a fundamental tension between what they know to be basically settled political reality. Trump... One, in part because he promised to give everyone health care. Yeah. Obamacare made it so that the country was united around the view that everyone should have insurance, uh, should be able to go see the doctor when they get sick. Um, and and this was what we witnessed over the last six months or what we were continuing to witness is Republicans grappling with their inability to reconcile their principles with the the commitments the country has made to itself. Right. Yeah. And so the question in my mind is. Where does the Republican Party go from like, do they ultimately try to re- reshape like what they think should happen in health? Where are the but the, in the in the where are the power centers of the Republican Party I mean, right now? Honestly, on the not not for put, put Trump aside. One of the things that's been so amazing to me and tell me if it's the same with you is like watching these Republican senators defy Mitch McConnell. Like yeah. he I in a million years, I would never have predicted Jerry Moran, Jerry fucking Moran. Yeah. Defying Mitch McConnell. And what does that say about where the power center is in the Republican Party right now? Yeah. It's I don't apart. know. Yeah. I just uh, but even even if you don't know where the power center is, like I don't think Mitch McConnell has strong beliefs on anything. No, I think that I think that like if you turn him into the Senate Democratic leader tomorrow, he'd be a fairly effective tactician at at like passing a, a decent health care bill. He's just like he's he, he knows how to move the levers of the Senate. He doesn't particularly care about any. Which is why this failure to me is but, in some ways really remarkable. But like but like, te, you know, the, the Ted Cruz Amendment, which the which like, you know, they put into the base Senate Republican health care bill. But 
clearly like the majority of that conference thought it was bad because it basically wiped away the coverage guarantee in Obamacare, which like what Bill Cassidy was saying earlier, the Kimmel test, the, and, and, and he was, he admitted repeatedly that what Obamacare did was create a consensus in the country that we can't go back from. Yeah. Um, and I think that the failure of repeal and replace is essentially the failure of. But this is why I think the power center matters, right? Because if you are going to have. But like, what I'm saying is. Hold I, on, Brian. You invited me on this podcast. I know. You're going to commandeer it for me? Okay, go ahead. One second. I just want to finish this very profound thought okay. that I have in my head. Because unless Mitch McConnell's willing to cede sort of legislative making authority back to certain people's. Um, I don't know where the future for healthcare is. Like if he can, if one of the things that people forget about Obamacare is that it didn't get passed because Nancy Pelosi and Harry Reid put it together. It was Henry Waxman. It was Max Baucus. It was different power Mitt centers. Romney. <laughs> it, Mitt Romney, for sure. Uh, it was different people who had worked on the issue for many, many mm -hmm. years and they would not relinquish that power. Now, you could say that was helpful or hurtful for the process, but it was the process. McConnell has not done that at all. And so if you're trying to game out what the future of healthcare is from a Republican Party's perspective, a lot of it is predicated on the extent to which Mitch McConnell will get out of the way. Here's what I would like Democrats to do as, as far as like pressing this point. If Republicans can't in some way signal that like like Bill Cassidy and Susan Collins in their they put together this health care bill that is not like the like one that I think is a great health care bill, but it it essentially accepts the premise that um, everyone there should be enough public financing and enough rules in place to make sure that people have some baseline level of coverage. Yeah. Um, if Republicans like move into that space at like reluctantly, whatever. Fine, great. Like, I'm, I, it's unclear to me then exactly what happens. Maybe you tinker around the edges of Obamacare forever and ever and ever. But if they don't, if they s stay in the in the sort of Ted Cruz House Republican, like not so sweet spot of trying to roll back the the universal coverage consensus, then I think Democrats need to move away from this thing where they like they like appropriate Trump's claim that this the House health care bill was mean, where the subtext of that are, is that. We are doing this to be nice, like to 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 be charitable to people because people are poor. People don't have the means to do for themselves what everyone agrees should be done for them. And I mean, that's like true. And I'm all for that. But like I, when we were talking about this, it reminded me of Obama's second inaugural and this line from it where he was like basically like handing Paul Ryan his ass. He said the commitments we make to each other through Medicare and Medicaid and Social Security do not sap our initiative. They strengthen us. They do not make us a nation of takers. They free us to take the risks that make this country great. Like, good speech line, but if if Democrats can co-opt this space where what they're doing, what, what their goals are with respect to universal health care are about, like, like liberty in some sense, um, where Republicans are will not touch, say, the, the, the tax exclusion that makes employer-sponsored health care what it is. So they, they want people to be linked to jobs they hate yeah. to keep health care, but they're unwilling to give people who are, like, outside of the employer system yeah. struggling and, and, like, begging for handouts, et cetera, et cetera. The Republicans, like, have demonstrated that their, their conception of 
freedom in this country is is like you're free to beg your employer for insurance and to have to supplicate to him even if you hate him yeah uh to to keep to keep being able to go to the doctor and if you're unwilling to go get a job in the job market then we'll crush you and that and like that is like slightly hyperbolic but that is no actually... it's not hyperbolic i remember and i'm, I'm sure i'm going to get some of these details wrong but i vaguely remember a cbo report that came out yeah. after obamacare has passed I, I can sing chapter and verse about this but go on but they showed that um there'll be a certain number of job losses oh, a little over two million yeah. uh full-time equivalent employment will go down right yeah so in the big fight i mean republicans jumped on it um as good political parties do but I remember the White House uh, pushing back with their own messaging, being like, no, 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 no. Think of this differently. Conceive of this as people who are tied to jobs that they hate and now suddenly can get rid of them and go and do certain things that they've always wanted to do because they don't have to worry it, about continuous health care coverage. And, you know, I, get, I, 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 I understood the White House's position and I understood their spin and it makes logical sense. But I do remember acutely uh how much they got their ass whipped in terms of a public relations yeah yeah well so it, it wasn't just the white house it was it was the congressional budget office like here here's a quote that i just pulled up from doug elmendorf um the reason we don't use the term lost jobs is there's a critical difference between people who like to work and can't find a job or have a job that's lost for reasons beyond their control and people who choose not to work. Yes. If someone comes up to you and says the boss says i'm being laid off because we don't have enough business uh to pay we feel bad about that and sympathize for them having lost their job. If someone says, I decided to retire or stay home and spend more time with my family and spend more time doing my hobby, they don't feel bad about it. They feel good about it. And we don't sympathize. We say congratulations. Yes. What he was and Republicans si say you force people into retirement. What he, what he, what, what he was, what he was saying, like the, the, the like technical, uh, is that the vast majority of the job losses CBO forecasted, uh, or full-time equivalent reduction was in, in, in weakening the phenomenon of job lock, where people are held yes. to their employer because they need their job for health care. And there was some small number of jobs that CBO forecast Obama would would cost just um, in terms of like employees choosing not to work longer hours because they didn't want their subsidy level to go down. But Republicans just seized on it to be like, haha, like two million job losses. Two million job losses. What they what they were saying is we want two million people who would like to quit their job but for the fact that they need that insurance yeah. to be stuck in in that job as opposed to the one that they want to make for themselves. And like it's a slightly complicated argument and I'm not a PR professional, but it seems to me that that you can actually not just own the like sort of charity space for healthcare where you where if you're Democrats you support universal health care because it's the morally right thing to do. But <laughs> You support it because it's like a positive good. It like makes is there is there part of the problem here? Do you think is that we have this sort of uh, antiquated um, idealistic version of what employment in America should be? That we you know harken back to the days where you worked at one place your entire life and you took care of your family and the hours weren't totally miserable and and you know even Trump sort of brings it up all the time like bring back coal and all that crap and we think of that as simplistic and easy and non-eventful and the notion that you might have five six maybe 10 12 different jobs over the course of a lifetime and sifting through the individual market and back to the employer-based market is i mean admittedly a little bit frightening i so so there some health economists have done some good work on job lock i would like to talk to i've never experienced for the record the daily beast and huffpost i've never experienced job lock i love you both <laughs> um the uh i i don't know what a historical look back at job lock would 
would look like. I, I mean, I know that like. But from, you get from, my from, point, right? Yeah, yeah. From covering the Affordable Care Act, we have the gig economy now, yeah. and like, like, like Uber Uber drivers and and like the Uber, uh, see, like executives and people in that workspace are like huge fans of Obamacare because it allows them to have a, a, a functioning yeah. system, right? Um, I bet if you you know if you if you drew back the lens to the 1950s when inequality was lower, when labor unions were stronger, when the economy was less decentralized, that job lock wasn't something that, even though it was like, you know, the, like the, 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 the technical fact that employer-sponsored insurance was the main way people got their insurance back then, that the phenomenon where people felt tied to the job because of the healthcare alone, it just does not ring with my kind of fuzzy sense of what life in, in the job market was like back then. Sure. Um, I, I bet you that the, the phenomenon of people feeling like owned by their boss because of healthcare has gotten more and more and more and more severe. As healthcare costs have gone up, labor unions have weakened, inequalities risen, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but it's a complicated question. It's just one that I think like the fact that everyone is so familiar with this problem presents an, and, and like even Trump is at some level familiar with this problem because he ran on it yeah. that that it, uh, it opens up a political space that Democrats have sort of never really tried to to operate in because they think that the cruelty of what Republicans want to do with health care speaks for itself rather than oh, like rather operating than in the flip side case, yeah, yeah like operating are you impressed that I recalled the CBO study I, I I mean I'm not surprised you're you're I wouldn't have had you on if you weren't a, a bright, attentive fellow. <laughs> yeah, but I'm impressed, Eric. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I mean, I'm guessing, I'm guessing uh, you were editing Jeff Young and John Cohn or something. Something and, around yeah. that time, yeah. Uh, anyway, uh, I don't know if we've like milked healthcare for all it's worth. I think we have. Do you think that now that Obamacare repeal is is in hibernation or or zombie mode again, and tax reform? Is like tax reform is going to happen next week, right? <laughs> yeah, it's it's like they're working on it. It's it's going to be wonderful. It's so so that's nowhere obviously. Like the debt li the debt limit is coming up, and it really looks like the GOP's legislative agenda is a, a, like a total mess. I mean, what they're not is getting it? they're not they're not getting what is the agenda now? I mean, well, I suppose that the main accomplishment of this Congress and Trump, in a way, is. Um, well, you know, it's really they're doing, Trump. They're, it's, it's regulatory rollback, right? Yeah, they're they're doing all these Congressional Review Act yeah. resolutions that allow. Them I mean, to... basically, he'll have really screwed over the climate, and I think that's and and, and I should also say because I don't want to seem insensitive, uh, harsher immigration enforcement. Yeah, um, but you know, DACA's still in place. But but what? I mean, the... it's just an it's an interesting thing to wonder what's going through like. Um, People who uh, run these campaign committees for Republicans think right I, now, Look, right? I, I obviously don't think that we're going to get like a big change in demeanor or directional approach from GOP investigators on the Hill. And that now that the legislative agenda is, is kind of crumbling, that they're going to say, all right, well, what do we have to lose by going after Trump? By going after Trump? You have but a lot, I, to, but, have a lot to lose. I don't fully understand it, though, because... Because if 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 you if the, the reason you make the devil's bargain with Trump is because he will sign the bills, he he will sign the bills, and he's got the <laughs> he's got the support of Republican voters. So his popularity among Republican voters is supposed to lend cohesion 
to the Republican conferences in the House and Senate. And that's supposed to create an environment where bills fly out of the fly out of the Congress to the White House. He signs them. And then and then at some point, if if his behavior, his conduct becomes too bad to ignore, then maybe you pocketed a whole bunch of wins. Um, And so but but if, if that's dead, then what's he for? He's for appointing judges and for. And for administrative crackdowns and things like and that. And tax reform if it happens. No, no, but that's the thing is we're, is, is you're we're not, you, the premise here is you're not going to pocket the wind. So what's the point? Right. Like, the like, point like, is like, that like, you are tied to this ship. And there, if he goes down, you go down. Okay, but that, so, so given, that, given that Mike Pence would appoint the same judges that Trump is going to nominate and- Because the stench and, of him falling is going to- Well, so, so that's, is there, a tr- is, there, is there a trick you can think of by which Republicans, if they were like inclined- could drag down Trump's approval ratings for the purposes of disentangling their fates from his. You should have, that- this is where you should have had Rick Perlstein on, right? Like I'm curious because uh, when I was reading Nixonland, I mean, like the the Republican Party, um, there it seemed according to Rick's book was sort of loath to abandon Nixon even as his uh, scandal was mounting. But then it kind of got to a point where it was so toxic that they calculated it was in their interest to create distance, except for uh, a few opportunistic voices who were continuously defending Nixon, one of whom was Ronald Reagan. And the point Rick was making, I think, was that, you know, even in moments of, you know, what looks like uh, complete toxicity, um, the base is the base and the base will be there. And Reagan calculated at that moment that, you know, they might not like Nixon now, but they'll applaud him for defending the party. It might be that's like some sort of partisan impulse that you have and, and, and party brand defines everything. But I just think if I'm a Republican on the Hill and t- Trump is toxic, I'm still I'm still reluctant to see, be on his bad see, side. I feel like it, this is a puzzle that can probably be solved in theory. And I don't I don't even think you need to get that granular about Nixon or anything. Sure. Like I was just like, trying to impress well, you. <laughs> but, just, but just think about it like like. Uh, uh, a Republican president resigned in disgrace rather than be impeached, and it was supposed to be the the death knell for Republicanism forever. And five years later, or whatever, you have the Reagan Revolution. Like, yeah. like the George W. Bush presidency ended in unmitigated disaster with a president at twenty something percent approval rating, yeah. the economy in the toilet, two wars, et cetera, et cetera. Two years later, historic Republican landslide. Right, like, like does that say more about Democrats or? Cycles. No, I just think it just says more about the cycles of the, our like politics. like like the the I think the term political science uses thermostatic that that politics whether one party is more corrupt or incompetent it's or whatever the other right? is just that, that like you know shit gets bad under one party or shit gets dissatisfying under one party mm. and you only have one other choice so it, things swing back in the other direction and if you're cynical enough you can get away with all kinds of misconduct that way if you're willing to take brief periods of pain of pain in the wilderness and and which is sort of what obama and pelosi did right i mean kind of except i could have gone further to to like to like to like more elevated ends right yeah of course but they knew the healthcare stuff was not going to play well and they did it yeah yeah i I, there were and i think that you know running running the the history backwards where they cut bait on aca it, it wouldn't look as 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 like they, they wouldn't have salvaged the house in 2010. It was no. not. Um, and like, and like this, this <laughs> failure that we're witnessing in Congress right now might not like automatically generate a democratic majority because the, the districts are more gerrymandered now than they were then. The economy probably won't be in the, in a terrible state. It was in late 2010. 
Um, and so you can imagine like Republicans electing Trump, allowing him to be corrupt, failing to do any of the things they promised to do in Congress, any of the big things they promised to do in Congress anyway, and still holding on to the House. I mean, that's depressing, but it's true. No, I think it's I think it's totally true. But to your point, what would it take? Uh, at what point do Republicans in the House or the Senate decide, you know what, he's outlived his utility to us? I, I, don't, I mean, <clears throat> I don't know. I just feel like I feel like the situation would have to be like on such a live wire, like he's about to start bombing countries or he's, you know. Oh, yeah, I think I think one. Well, I don't. Yes. And I think the economy is also the big wild card. Like they're, they're OK with the fact that he might be susceptible to blackmail to set foreign policy by the terms of a like a uh adversarial country yes <laughs> um and that's like they're like oh we'll just let robert Mueller sort it out um like if if general if, mattis if, will be the adults in the room there there's there's like a milgram experiment going on with them where i think that they're like it would take you know oh the country might end up being like literally destroyed to rubble then maybe they would <laughs> um we laugh but yeah not, no it's, it's not it's, a laughing yeah matter. Um, do you have any closing thoughts for us? Well, I, I thought about this a lot, and I just want to say what an incredible honor it is to be the <laughs> first repeat guest on this podcast. You're not the first, sorry. You told me I was the first. No, I, among the first. Okay, and I just want to encourage everyone to subscribe to a far superior podcast, <laughs> Candidate Confessional, by All right. Sam Stein and Jason Church. I was going to give you one last plug for that in my closing, but well, I'm just going to... I gonna, just took it. I'm just going to say... Uh, no, honestly, it's been great. Um... We should, I, shudder, I shudder to think that we'll be back here in eight months talking we about should, healthcare again. We should do these more because I, frankly, find it really time-consuming and annoying to have to book new, fresh-faced guests every oh, week. And those people—they're not fun. And uh, I'm fun. Yeah, you are. You, you, you actually make it so that I answer some questions. You know, it would be nicer me. if you let me speak a little bit more. I got to <laughs> be honest. I've heard of reviews of your podcast. Mickey, cut cut all of this. And the Mickey, main the main this. review is that while. Smart and insightful. None of this is making it into the show. Brian talks a tiny, tiny bit too much. Okay. Well, uh, nobody's going to hear anything you just said. <laughs> We're removing all of it. All right, Sam Stein. Brian, uh, thank you so Thanks, much. Man. Appreciate it. Bye. This episode of Primary Concerns was produced by Mickey Capper. You can find us on Twitter at Prime underscore Concerns, on NewRepublic.com, and anywhere you download your podcasts. I'm Brian Boitler. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back next week. Thank you.